and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ipsdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'll be talking about Netflix Spanish-language miniseries Cathedral of the Sea with a fellow historian of medieval Barcelona, Marie Kelleher. Welcome, Marie. Thanks so much for being here. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is great. I've been looking forward to this with uh, anticipation and just a teeny bit of dread. So. <laughs> this is your first time podcasting, right? This is a long-time listener, first-time potter, All right. I guess. So there you go. Got to be a first time for everybody. Exactly. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to cover this particular piece of media? I am a professor of medieval history at California State University, Long Beach. And I am, uh, although I teach the whole realm of the Middle Ages, as most of us who teach Mm -hmm. in medieval history do, my particular areas of specialty in my research are gender, law, and the history of medieval Iberia, specifically the crown of Aragon, which is kind of that northeastern corner of what's now Spain and includes the city of Barcelona. I'm currently at work on a book on early 14th century Barcelona, hopefully finished at the end of this year. And so When I saw this was out, I thought it was really interesting because it's based on a wildly popular Mm -hmm. historical novel called Catedral del Mar, or The Cathedral of the Sea, about this really large basilica church that's in Barcelona still to this day. It's very big and impressive and has a whole story to it. And gorgeous. It is gorgeous, too. And I love reading historical fiction. And um, I picked the book up because I like reading in a target language when I'm in a country to kind of Mm -hmm. give me the rhythm of the language. And um, (laughs) nearly, uh, I I, I had a strong reaction to this book. I tried reading it twice. The first time I got 50 pages Mm -hmm. in, the second time I got about halfway through it. Disclaimer here, I have never finished the novel, uh, but I've read enough of it to kind of know what it's about. And when I saw Netflix had a series on this, and I'd been listening to Sarah's podcast for a long time. Uh, Sarah can tell you I immediately wrote to her and said, oh my God, Sarah, are you thinking of doing this? If you ever do this, you have to call me. Okay. So I am very excited to be a part of this conversation and to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly in uh, this particular series. Yeah. So I actually read Falcones' novel, I guess, relatively shortly after it was published. The novel was, I believe, published in 2006. I read it my very first time in Catalonia during during uh, doing research. I was in Barcelona for about two weeks and then otherwise in the neighboring city of Girona for the rest of the time, but read it uh, at that time in English and had fun with it at the time, but, you know, I was an undergrad, so I didn't know any better. Yeah. And <laughs> then decided to pick it up again and reread it in Spanish when I was uh, there I guess at some point when I was uh, there doing research in in, or maybe even after graduate school and did not get past the beginning. And we'll talk in a moment about what about that beginning might have made it so difficult to move past. Oh, yes. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yes. That was where I stopped. I think you and I stopped in the same place the second time I made it a little farther. But after a while, I just kind of went, oh, can't. The other thing I wanted to say about this book, too, is that it is a runaway bestseller. Mm -hmm. 
in Spain and in Europe. I don't know how many languages it's been translated into, but it's a lot. If you go to Barcelona, you can get sort of like Cathedral of the Sea tours yeah. of the city. Even though most of this series is not actually shot in Barcelona, they do have some location shots, but it's shot in various locations throughout Iberia. And uh, so you can get these little kind of tours and occasionally I'll pass by one and listen to what the tour guide is saying and I just like have to restrain myself from like running up to them and saying no stop it no bad very bad stop it give me that microphone I just, I know not everybody wants a learned lecture. And I just want to say too, one of the reasons I, I'm excited to do this podcast in general and that I picked up the book is that I think that historical media, whether it's a novel, whether it's a film, whether it's good, whether it's mm -hmm. bad, I think it serves a really important purpose yeah. in that it draws people in. It gets people excited about the period. It allows them to visualize what's going on, even if that first visualization is, you know, just rife with inaccuracies. It really gets people excited. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of my my students come to me through movies, through Absolutely. videos, sometimes Same. through novels, through gaming. And I, I actually build my medieval survey around these popular mm -hmm. assumptions that everyone comes to the Middle Ages with. And so as much as I am going to probably like really get down and dirty with these, mm -hmm. uh, this particular bit of media, I in no way want to say that, you know, any of this, whether it's the novel or the series is a waste of time because it gets, it brings people in, it gets them interesting. And then once they're in my classroom, I can say, okay, what works and what doesn't yeah. and why, and what are some of the choices that these creators are making? And so that's one of the reasons. I love this podcast and I'm just so happy to be on it. That's very much one of the reasons I started the podcast too, is because I had so many students who came in with all sorts of assumptions that were clearly drawn from films, from Game of Thrones, from various other media that really shaped how they look at the Middle Ages, but also made them excited about the Middle Ages and made them interested in taking courses set uh, in or that focused on the medieval world. Right. And we want to keep that excitement. Yes. We don't want to be the, like the person at the party who's like, well, actually, that just sucks <laughs> all the fun out of it. And it's so, so I hope we're going to have some fun today. Yes even as we're kind of dissecting it historically. Yes. And I'll just mention uh, before we move forward, uh, so Cathedral of the Sea was released in 2018. It is in uh, Spanish, but with English subtitles, and stars Aitor Luna as Arnaua Saniol, Pablo Darqui as Juan, Andrea Duro as Aledas, Silvia Abascal as Eleanor, Michelle Jenner as Mar, Jusat Maria Poe as Sahat, Natalie Poza as Francesca, and Ramon Madaula as Hastai Crescas. Just to mention some of the central figures, uh, I do not know any of these people from anywhere personally. I don't watch a ton of Spanish language film or television. Same here. And it has, a, that's just like a small list of this massive yes. cast of named characters that we meet over the course of these eight hours of television. Right. Several of whom also have younger selves, too, who I haven't even included. So, yes. Yes, exactly. The first proper section is the enumeratio, which, given the length of this show, so this is eight hours, it's eight one-hour episodes of television, and it is dense. 
So given that, I have attempted to just uh, create a bit of a plot summary. So I'm going to do a little reading and then we'll take some pauses and we'll get into some of the details and uh, what really jumped out to us and how we felt about it. Cathedral of the Sea opens with the ill-fated marriage of Bernat Estagnol and Francesca Esteva, as immediately after their wedding, Francesca is raped by their lord, claiming his right of the first knight, and Bernat is then forced to rape her himself. Content warning, everybody. Content warning. For everything. Mm-hmm. Bernat rescues his infant son, albeit not his wife, from the vengeful lord and flees to Barcelona, where he stays with his sister Guillamona and her husband Graupuj, who have established a successful business in the city. However, because he killed a man during his escape, Bernat is now beholden to the Puj family, even as relations become increasingly hostile when their daughter Margarita lies and blames Arnaud for a uh, escapade that ended in the death of her brother. So there already was just a lot. I had a trouble moving on after the first episode with the multiple rapes of this one woman in Mm. quick succession. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, and yeah, and and there's, I mean, there's a several rape scenes throughout this series and something Sarah and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, the point of each of them cinematically is to show the suffering of the main yes. male character, mm-hmm. which is something that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about later in the next section. There's a lot to unpack there, obviously. What I found especially striking and somewhat horrifying is that I think Francesca says about two sentences before she's raped and not a lot after. No, absolutely not. And there's this bit where, you know, Bernard is, you know, forced to rape her and it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And we're really focused on his suffering yes. or the, the filmmaker wants <sighs> us to do it. Apparently he's not sorry enough not to perform, which right. that, right. I was like, okay, yeah, I just don't, mm, no. No. And we'll get into the whole like right of the first night later. Yes. I know this is one of the major points that we're going to go on to, but spoiler alert, maybe it's not a thing. And we'll get yep. into how and why it's not a thing and how and why it keeps showing up. Right. Because that's something I've had to deal with on this podcast multiple times, which is uh, one of the things that is most frustrating to me, particularly as a historian of women and gender, that I have to deal with this all the time. And I will note also before we move on that there is also another episode of Brutality Against a Woman that in this event where the youngest child of the Puch family dies and are now is blamed, the other person who gets blamed is their Muslim slave Habiba, who is then whipped to death, which we see in graphic detail. She's whipped to death naked. Yes, of course she is. That's a choice right there. That's a choice right there. I just wanted to say one more thing about the escape to Barcelona. There's a scene that I just found completely hilarious. So so Bernat's got his little baby Arnaud with him. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he's he's in the bustling marketplace. And Barcelona at this time is a huge city by medieval standards. It's got about 30,000 people living in it. So it's a good-sized city. It's a good place to go get lost. Mm -hmm. And then there's a bit where he's in the marketplace 
and the vengeful lord's henchmen are in the city and they're like peeking at every baby, right? I'm like, what is with the baby inspectors? That's going to take a long time. It's a massacre in the innocence I know it's just it is there's also there's also the thing we know it's Bernat's son and not the vengeful lord's son because he has the family birthmark and all mm-hmm. the all the men of the family have a certain birthmark under their eye and that's not how birthmarks work just I'm not a biologist but I'm pretty sure that's not how birthmarks work it so really reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you ever read Ed- uh, Edward Rutherford's novel, London, but it's this multi-generational saga. And the way he has you keep track of particular families is that for a thousand years, they have the exact same odd physical traits and also personalities. And this mm-hmm. sort of reminded me of that. I had not read that one. I read his first novel, Serum, and he did exactly the same mm-hmm. thing in that one. They have exactly the same personality traits. They have, yeah, they look the same. Yeah, it's it's helpful in a thousand year novel, but yes. uh, yeah, Little not so how birthmarks work. Okay, right. anyway. After Giamona's death, because God forbid we let a woman character live in this in this show, Graupuch's new wife, Isabella, joins his children in their semi-incomprehensible efforts to destroy Bernat and Arnau. Meanwhile, the young Arnau develops new relationships with a boy named Juan, his, whose mother is locked up in a hut for adultery, we'll discuss, mm-hmm. with the Bastaixus, or porters, contributing to building the Church of Santa Maria del Mar, and with the Virgin Mary herself, whom he sees as his mother. When Bernat leaves the Pooch household, he takes in Juan, and the boys live as brothers. But the family's fortunes take yet another sudden turn for the worse during the famine in Barcelona, when Bernat is involved in a urban revolt over the lack of grain, and then hanged. Okay, and I have, uh, this is exactly the year. This famine revolt is a thing. Yes. This is exactly, this is precisely the year I'm studying. So I'm going to try not to go on too long here, but I do have a couple (laughs) things I want to say. The first one has nothing to do about this. When we meet Isabel, Isabel is the first of the scheming evil women that we meet in this. We have several cartoonishly bad Women. Or well, I guess I will say also Margarita. Margarita starts early as being a That's scheming true. evil woman. Yes, and, and I'm gonna come back to her in my Fabula Nostra section because I have some ideas for her. But um an interesting thing is there's also a look, and I think that this is true for Spanish language telenovelas as well. Mm-hmm. The bad women are always blonde. <laughs> With one exception. Isabel is the exception, but the bad women are blonde. The good women all look remarkably similar, which is creepy in its yes. own way. Yeah. She Isabel always looks like she's smelling something really bad, uh-huh. which is to be fair, in 14th century Barcelona, she likely was. But the main thing I wanted to mention here is that this famine is a real thing. One Catalan Chronicle uh, from the city of Girona refers to it as, and this gets repeated in textbooks for a while, the first bad year. Which I just love as a phrase. I find it really (laughs) charming in its own way. It was not the first bad year. There's a scene in here where Isabel and Grau Puig, they're all sitting around the table and they're talking about this famine that's uh, that's striking the countryside. And they're saying, and he's like, oh, Barcelona has never, or she says, Barcelona has never gone without bread. And 
Yes, it has. In fact, in very recent memory, Mm -hmm. it has. This was a particularly bad example. Uh, We have lots of documentary record that shows like incredible price spikes and their, Mm -hmm. you know, the Barcelona sending ships out and engaging with piracy against their allies to steal their grain. Yeah. And they're is a riot that takes place in the grain market. It doesn't go down quite the way it does in the film, but, you know, close enough. There are also conspiracy theories surrounding Mm. that are going on. um, Like there's, and you see kind of a glimmer of this here that, you know, there is this preacher who's going out and saying that, oh, it's just the counselors and they've got all the grain. They're just hiding it from you to make profits. Mm -hmm. For once, we have a conspiracy theory that doesn't blame the Jews. So that's refreshing. (laughs) Always nice. (laughs) Exactly. But this is a real thing. And it's not just in Barcelona or Catalonia. There's climate change going on at this time. Mm -hmm. And so these grain shortages are happening throughout the Mediterranean, which means that Barcelona can't get grain from the countryside and it can't get grain from its normal overseas sources either. And that's what made this famine worse than others, from what I understand, right? Is that normally it's, well, get some grain from Sicily. And at this point, there was not grain to be had in Sicily either. Right, exactly. And you've got ships from cities all over the Mediterranean trying to do the same thing, competing Mm -hmm. for grain, stealing each other's grain, hijacking each other's shiploads full of grain. And in the meantime, people are literally starving in Mm -hmm. the city of Barcelona. The chronicles say that 10% of the population died. 10% is a suspiciously round number. So we want to take that with a grain of salt. They did have salt, just no bread to put it on. (laughs) But this is, it is a severe thing, but there's no agreement even in the medieval chronicles about exactly how that riot went down, who was responsible. We do know that 10 or a dozen people were publicly hanged Mm -hmm. and posted at sort of the main entrances to the city as sort of a warning for people not to riot, Uh, which people in Barcelona did with relative frequency Mm -hmm. for various reasons. Right. And of course, there's a big drama that his uh, body is meant to be left up after he is hanged and uh, Arnau goes and sneaks in and instead burns the body so that he can not be on display in this shameful manner. And Arnau is still a little boy at this point too. So he kind of like goes in and sets his father on fire. And this becomes a plot point later. And this is also, I guess, when he... He's been buddies with the Bastaichus for a while. He's been carrying water for them while they're bringing stones from the shores from the shores up to the church. And they're actually coming from Montjuic, which is it's a mm. it's a good it's a good chunk of uh, and that's the king's quarry. So the king's donated the stone from his quarry. The Bastaichus, we should say, are sort of all-purpose porters. Um, so they'll yeah. carry like your shipments of grain from the waterfront to the market. They kind of hang around in this area mm-hmm. around the construction site, sort of like day laborers do in some places yeah. today. And they're hired out. This series sort of conflates them with the boatmen right carpenters at one point um, with the army they're just they're sort of like you know they're sort of like the random anytime you need like a random cast of working class characters yeah but there they are and that's that's what probably like a half an hour walk when you're not carrying particularly heavy things 
maybe even a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, I would say probably at least 45 minutes. Okay. But it's I guess a, I usually take good... the metro. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. If the pistachios could take the metro, it would be a lot faster. So much easier. <laughs> Barcelona is a great metro system these days, but not in the 14th century. No. They got that right, at least. That's good. Um, but yes, but so this is where he, uh, he also, because... Uh, while he's hiding out in the church because he's just burned his father's body, he witnesses a theft. At first he's accused and then it gets proved that it's one of the Bastaishus who is responsible. And so then he gets to be a made a Bastaish himself, which so mm-hmm. that's nice for him. He's got a job. And there's a very inspiring scene of him carrying the stone. It's sort of like the training montage in a sports movie. Yes. So. Yeah. Which I remember being really striking in the book even. So. Mm-hmm. Arnaud and Juan grow to adulthood. Juan plans to become a priest, while Arnaud falls for Aledis, the daughter of the new lodgers in their household. He asks for his hand in marriage, but is turned down. The two both marry other people, but continue an affair. Arnaud goes to war to escape his girl troubles. Aledis follows him and ends up becoming a prostitute, because of course she does. Alongside, it turns out, Arnaud's mother, Francesca. Arnaud, however, enjoys great success and returns then to Barcelona just in time to witness his wife Maria die of the plague, again, because of course she does. Mm -hmm. His fortunes rise once again after he saves two Jewish children during an attack on the Jewish quarter, motivated by the belief that they have caused the plague. Their father, Hastai Crescas, as a reward, sets up Arnau as a money changer and gives him his Muslim slave, Sahat. Okay, uh, one of the things about Aladis... (laughs) Okay, Aladis, not that Arnau would know this, but Aladis looks a lot like his mom. She does! And his and wife. Then, and his and his <laughs> and his wife. And then later on, his final love interest, problematic love interest, who we will mm-hmm. meet later. There's a scene in the eighth episode where the two of them meet, and I'm looking and I'm like, okay, yeah, you guys look alike too. So Arnau has a type. Which he inherited from his father, apparently, along with the birthmark. Along with the birthmark. (laughs) And it is not the creepiest thing about that final love interest. We will get to that. Uh, There's a lot of bad things there. But, and they have this this affair in a literal love shack. (laughs) There is. There is this sort of, on the path, they sort of meet up on the path between the quarry and the church site. So he just like ducks in i don't he's supposed to be working they take a little sex break there in the love shack lots and lots of times there personally i think maria the woman who he marries and never has sex with right is a very nice girl who tries hard to please him and she totally deserves better she really does and she you know she's very enthusiastic i also honestly feel bad for you know i hate saying this because obviously you know the women are so downtrodden in this that i hate to say i also feel bad for a man but i feel bad for her father who really i think was genuinely excited about this and is one of the best issues who has been very very kind to our now for many years and mm-hmm. uh, was like and was very excited about welcoming him into his family and i feel kind of bad for him that he turned out to be yeah. such a jerk as a husband Normally, this would have been a great marriage, and marriage strategies in lots of the different social classes in Barcelona, which we'll talk about, tend to be less the kind of social climbing sort that we see with uh, Grau Puig and his second wife, who is uh, much more socially well-off. Yes. And they tend to be more lateral, you know, uh, artisans with artisans, merchants Mm -hmm. with merchants. 
And they're meant to solidify ties between people of similar social classes. And so this would have been a great match. And it's one that allows Adonau to move up like just a little, essentially, right? That he's already uh, part of the guild. He's already a Bastaisha, but that he is... uh, you know, he, he needs a bit of a cash infusion, which he gets through the dowry. It solidifies mm-hmm. these connections that he has already. It, yeah, it should have been a very good match for everybody involved. Right, exactly. But Arnau is carrying a torch for Alevis, so. Yes. She also does this super quick turn from being a perfectly nice, normal girl who ends up in this marriage, which is horrific, and she is brutalized. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, she becomes this... Manipulative. Almost villainous figure, yes, who keeps who keeps saying that she's going to expose him if he doesn't run away with her and mm-hmm. get him kicked out of the guild and ruin his life. And it's like, all, where did this vindictiveness come from? No, and then it disappears by the next episode. It's just this little flash in there. So I don't know what the whole purpose of that was but there you have it another evil scheming woman at least temporarily yes there's also the issue uh we we meet for the first time the uh, some named characters in the jewish population Mm -hmm. in the city and i know we're going to talk more about them later but they're a very important presence in barcelona at the time they tend to be concentrated in there are probably about 6,000 Jews living in Barcelona mm-hmm. at this time. They tend to be concentrated in the Jewish quarter, although not exclusively. We have Jews living in various places in the city. And also by now there are two Jewish quarters, essentially. There's the big yes. Jewish quarter, and then there's also the kind of little Jewish quarter that's a little bit further away from uh, from where the main, Jew- the main Jewish quarter is, uh, which is in uh, what is today the Barigotique, right in the center of the medieval city, very close to the cathedral. Right, exactly. And we also meet Sahat, who's going to become a major character throughout the rest of the series. And he is a slave and he is a Muslim. And we know he's a Muslim because he's wearing what? A turban. Of course, which Habiba also has a little turban going on. Yeah, she does. And I, okay, there are there are these things in the Middle Ages called sumptuary laws, and they're basically they don't just apply to Jews and Muslims. They they're among other things. They kind of tell you how you should or shouldn't dress according to your station, mm-hmm. and it's a matter of law. And for Jews and Muslims, especially, they were a way of keeping them from passing. In yeah. some ways. So you see uh, several several times you'll see Jews outside of the quarter in this wearing like a big sort of yellow badge, a circle, mm-hmm. big circle on their outer garment, which was definitely a part yep. of Barcelona law. Muslims uh, in various law codes in Catalonia had to wear a distinctive headgear or a distinctive haircut, Muslim men, that is, but not a turban. Right. The the turban's just silly. It's it's meant to signify Islam to the modern viewer. It also has this interesting point that officially Sahat converts to Christianity and takes the name Guillem, which is standard that when you convert mm-hmm. to Christianity from Judaism or Islam, you tend to take a new name. Mm-hmm. And so he does this. And the reason he does this is because then it's not... I hostai am just giving you this slave to be nice because then he might look like he likes Jews too much. 
It's that, uh, well, he's converted to Christianity, and so he doesn't have to be freed, but I, a Jew, can no longer own him because he is a Christian. Mm-hmm. However, everybody is very chill about the fact that he is continuing clearly to practice Islam, and that he also, in private, uses the name Sahat, which I have thoughts about that I will get into later. Right, exactly. Yeah, I have some notes to talk about that later as well. Yes, in almost always he's referred to as Sahat with a couple of exceptions. Right. And I'm going to say one more thing about Hastai Kraskas, which is that inexplicably he keeps referring to himself in the third person all the time. Yeah, what's up it's with that? so weird. <laughs> I've no, I'm going to no start idea. that in class. I'm going to start that in class here. <laughs> Professor Kelleher is displeased with your paper. <laughs> Professor Decker is a good teacher. <laughs> he's being like hostile is honorable and i'm like okay <laughs> with sahat's assistance arnau rises to wealth as a money changer he also adopts a bastaish orphan girl mar and achieves his desired vengeance against the puj family whom he ruins financially and sends off to the country Arnau develops new political connections thanks to loans that he has made to the king after he plays a crucial role in the defense of Barcelona against the Castilians. The king rewards him to his great chagrin by ennobling Arnau. He is the baron of what? Uh, Granouillers? Uh, I did not Mambouille. write down. Mambouille, yes. And one other place. Right. I especially remembered Granouillers because for various reasons, that's where I had to go to uh, get my Spanish visa stuff, take, uh, paperwork taken care of. Weird. So he is ennobled and then married off to the king's own ward, Eleanor. Meanwhile, Mar has upsettingly developed romantic feelings for yes. her adoptive father, which he seems to recipro- reciprocate, but at this point does not act on. Now, we should point out the reason that, um, something we forgot in the last section, the reason that Arnau is in a position to ruin the Puch family is because in exchange for saving his children's life, Hasdai has agreed to teach Arnau the money-changing trade. Mm-hmm. So he's got like loans and stuff, and he like buys up all the all the debts of yes. uh, evil Grau Puch and then sets, sends them out in the street. The king is also, this is not the first time we meet the king. We meet him briefly in an earlier scene. And I just want to say just really quickly about the casting choice they made yes. here. I do not know anything about these actors. They have cast uh, King Pera or Pedro or Peter in this as a big sort of somewhere between Henry VIII and Santa Claus, right? Yeah, he's even big and jolly, and he's like rotund. Kind of, yeah, and just he's big, got a jovial gray, sort of grizzled beard. At the point we first meet him in the series, when he looks like this. King Peter would have been 29 years old and quite (laughs) trim and fit. (laughs) And so this is, I was just really puzzled by this choice. And they could have used a couple different actors. It's not Mm -hmm. like they haven't done that with other major characters. Um, They could have kept him young. We have at least one portrait of him, although it was made a lot after the fact. And yet they've just chosen Santa. Right. (laughs) Or Henry VIII, which is maybe just Mm -hmm. do people think that's what kings look like? Well, you know, and for if they were only going for like an Anglophone audience, an English speaking audience, maybe. But this is this is also this is this is not. And so I I just found it entirely puzzling there. 
but we should probably talk a little bit about Mar. Yeah. Now, Mar starts out, <laughs> I love Mar as a little girl. She she's is great. feisty. Oh, she's fantastic. She is mischievous. She's always getting into trouble. She loves her new papa, who's really her godfather. He adopts her when she's about, I would say, maybe about 12 years old, 11, 12, something like that is what she looks like. She has all these friends who are, I think, probably, uh, you know, from Bastaish families that she keeps, you know, giving leftovers to. She's, you know, a nice mm-hmm. person. Right, exactly. And there's there's other little plot points in there that we don't need to get into. And then by the end of the episode, she's a, a grown woman, maybe in her late teens or early 20s. Mm-hmm. And Arnau has raised her, at, he is her godfather, mm-hmm. um, and he's been raising her in the household. And this is a fine and charitable thing to do. And everybody says it's praiseworthy. And he's like, I'm going to provide her with a dowry. We'll get her a good marriage. Sahat mm-hmm. has his doubts, but there you have it. We may talk later about this, but what being a godparent does, among other things, is it establishes a sort of a quasi-familial bond Mm -hmm. in canon law, which is to say church law. So it's like, it's almost like being a blood relation. It's sort of like the same degree as being an in-law. You are a family member legally, even if you're not related by blood, which Mm -hmm. is why... The feelings are so problematic, right? Yes. Well, that's why they're legally problematic. They're also problematic in that just the sense of uh, when they meet, she is about 12. He is about 30. Mm -hmm. And... She calls him father. She treats him as her father. He treats her as his daughter. That is 100% the dynamic until suddenly it's not. They, I think, essentially try to get around this by the fact that they do not switch actors for our now. They only switch actors for Mar. And so now they look to us like they're sort of the same age. And I guess we're supposed to forget the fact that actually he's old enough to actually just be her father right? and has acted as her father for much of her life. Right, exactly. And so it's, it is problematic on any number of levels. And uh, I'm sure Sarah and I are going to come back to the ick factor over and over and over again. So um, let's leave it for now because I know we'll have more time to talk about this later. Arnaud's marriage gets off to a rocky start, both because he and Eleanor do not like one another, but also because he abolishes the feudal abuses in his lands. The marriage continues to not improve. Although overt hostility between Arnaud and Eleanor characterizes his home life, his fortunes continue to rise politically as he becomes consul of the sea. Eleonore, however, is determined to ruin Arnau and Mar. Of course, gotta have somebody trying to ruin Arnau. In alliance with Juan, who allegedly believes that he is saving his brother's soul, she hires a knight to kidnap and rape Mar. Juan then pressures Arnau into allowing the knight to marry her. I am so furious because yes, in that the yes. end of the previous episode where they first kind of hinted at this romantic tension, I was like, you can't make me be here for this. And then they're like, but maybe can we by having somebody rape her and have her life become the worst? And it's like, I, no, I, I'm still that not here for this, but I also hate better. this. No. <laughs> we, 
We hate all these things. One of the reasons also beyond the fact that are now frees the Remenses, the serfs, which <laughs> I know you've got things to say on, is that she's uh, like all bad people in this movie, not are now, she's classist. Right, she just hates the idea that she's marrying somebody who is a former serf, and she comes back to it again and again and again. And I know we'll talk about that more later. He's also this this thing about the consul of the sea. Mm -hmm. The consulate of the sea is a sort of organization, an institution in Barcelona and in a few other cities in the crown of Aragon. And it's an organization that's meant to regulate commerce, uh, maritime commerce in the people who participate in it. And so the person who's sort of elected by its members to head it, the consul of the sea, Mm -hmm. has a lot of authority over this uh, group of people, which is a lot of people. And uh, it is tied to Barcelona's economic prosperity. So by extension, the Consul of the Sea has got a lot of power, Mm -hmm. even though it's not governmental power. And we see that he's able to kind of, you know, Arnau is able to sort of throw his weight around in a couple of key moments mm-hmm. here. And so I think that that is important. And I have thing I know that we'll talk more about like this so-called law that allows yes, that allows the marriage. I know we'll talk about that later. So um, let's I'll put a pin in that and kind of zip my lip on that for now. Yeah, I will say I think they do a very poor job of uh, justifying why Arnaud would actually agree to this. Mm-hmm. And again, and again, we get a lot of close up shots in here of the men feeling bad. Of course, right? of course. About, you know, Arnau is feeling bad and Juan is, uh, the his brother is feeling bad. Everybody's very sad. And so it's all about, you know, how, how traumatized the men are. I mean, it's partially about how traumatized Mar is, of course, too. A little. Um, this, you, you get this sense of betrayal. And I will say, and I'll say this later, I think the actors do a really good job with the material they're given. They bring yes. in some very good performances, even like the cartoonishly bad ones I I don't think that that's a problem of acting I think it's a problem of writing yes Uh, the other thing that I will note is that there's this really interesting uh, dynamic in this show so at the going back all the way to the beginning when people are poor they're they're very dirty the you know Bernat and Arnau is very dirty even at his wedding Bernat looks dirty Mm -hmm. he's tilling the fields with his bare hands which is a whole thing They wouldn't have done that. And uh, later, it's interesting because the other person who is physically filthy is this knight, Philippe de Ponce, that he is Mm -hmm. just physically dirty in this weird way. Yeah, you just want to say, comb your beard, guy. Comb your beard. And he has, like, he has dirt on his face, it looks like. Yes, yes. And this is, and it's, they're just sort of inexplicable yeah it, it is kind of the and i think that this is a trope in medieval movies and tele medieval themed movies and television too is that everybody in the middle ages was you know except for like snooty rich people who we don't like everybody in the middle ages was filthy yes all the time which not true they're probably right. they're not showering once a day like people in 21st century america are but they're also not like wallowing in their own filth all the time. Right. They're they're wiping the physical dirt off their face. <laughs> yes. Yes. Off. 
So yes, I always, it's just something, it's just something in these shoes, just that these people are just casually all the time, just encrusted in dirt, Mm -hmm. which yes. So we have this interesting, like first it's something that distinguishes between the rich and the poor. And then here it's almost this weird moral thing that that now everybody is clean, except for this one knight who Mm -hmm. is this kind of acknowledged terrible person. And the one character who we see in this, I was just thinking about this, was Juan, who by this point has become a Dominican friar. And, you know, early on, he's wearing his Dominican habit and he's, you know, fairly clean and well put together, but not fancy. And as he sort of descends, spoiler assert, descends into madness um, and Mm -hmm. self-recrimination, he gets dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. Right. And so that's, you know, I mean, we've all had times where we're bummed out and our personal grooming goes, uh, but, you know, Juwan's kind of an extreme example of this. (laughs) Right. Just increasingly, like, the filth grows as his moral state uh, or his kind of mental state declines. Ooh, it's a metaphor. Right. And yes, and he also has this kind of odd, like, little jump, which I'll talk about later, that at first it's like, he's going to be a Franciscan, and then it's just like, surprise, he's a Dominican, don't worry about it. Yeah, exactly. Which kind of makes me wonder if they forgot, but <laughs> I'll get into that. Somehow, inexplicably, having his uh, daughter raped and married off doesn't improve Eleanor and Arnau's marriage. How can that be? Who would have thought? She <laughs> moves on to... The next option, now in alliance with Arnau's other enemies, the Pooch family, that's right, they're back, and the new lord of Belletta, the lord whose father raped his mother, that's right, they're back too. She accuses him of having sexual relations with a Jewish woman, using as evidence the embrace that we see between Arnau and Chastai's daughter Raquel when Hastai is executed on a false charge of host desecration. Belletta and the Pooj siblings add in some fun witchcraft accusations. Belletta is centered on the figure of Arnau's mother, Mother Francesca, whom he claims his, that her milk gave him essentially probably what now we would call epilepsy. Right. And just for the listeners who don't know, and I know you'll go into more detail about this later, when Sarah says, post-desecration, what she's talking about is the uh, the Eucharist. And so the actual sort of bread or bread product that Catholics use as the body of Christ, post-desecration, the idea that, you know, Jews were stealing this just for the purpose of messing with it, right? Right. Um, and that's a, and that's, that's quite a, Jews do this, heretics do this. I mean, not real, right. not, not really, but according to the accusations, okay? And we'll talk about that later, but just to kind of clarify what we mean by host desecration here. And I will actually jump in now and just say also about the host desecrations that I find this really fascinating always as a particular species of anti-Jewish accusation, because the whole point of it is essentially that according to medieval Christian doctrine, and this is still true of Catholics today, the Eucharist, this wafer, physically, you know, is transformed into the body of Christ, even though to you it still looks like a cracker. Mm -hmm. This physical transformation is something that is, I would say, somewhat kind of fraught in that there are people who clearly find this a little theologically confusing because they're looking at it and it still looks like a cracker. And there's an argument to be made that host desecration accusations are in part sort of trying to reinforce that, but they're trying to reinforce it by claiming that Jews definitely do also believe in this process of transubstantiation and the transformation of the host into the body of Christ, and that the reason they're doing this is because they want to kill Jesus again. 
again and again and again, right? This is not just, you know, trolling. They actually, like Jews, actually believe in transubstantiation, even though a right. lot of Christians are sort of <laughs> shaky about it. Right, yeah. So I just love that. Is that like, oh, of course the Jews believe in transubstantiation. Jews are the best Christians. I mean, right. come on. <laughs> they're totally, they're all in on transubstantiation. Right. We get into this inquisitorial trial, which we will talk about more in detail shortly. A tormented and increasingly dirty Juan yes. now goes to confess to Mar about what really happened with her marriage. And Mar is pissed. Which fair. Yes, exactly. Meanwhile, Hastai's children, Raquel and Jusef, write to Sahat, who left Barcelona after Mar's rape, because to be fair, he just couldn't handle dealing with this whole situation anymore, and good for him. Mm-hmm. Shiwan recognizes Alevis when she goes to see Francesca because they're prostitute buddies now, and she now joins the others in their efforts to help Arnau. As Arnau undergoes trial before the Inquisitor Nicolau Aymeric, who is determined to convict him, his allies marshal support at the court of Prince, of Prince Juan and among the citizens of Barcelona. They triumphantly recover him by threat of an armed insurrection against the Inquisition itself. Juan, however, does not join in the rejoicing, but instead burns himself and Eleanor alive. And I do just have to say it goes back and forth between Arnau and Mar embracing and Juan and Eleanor embracing but with fire. Yes. Yes, they intercut this whole thing back and forth a lot. There, And I, I just want to also point out, too, this whole bit where, you know, Juan is in there and he's obviously, like, gone off the crazy train and he's setting things on fire and he's on fire and Eleanor is just not getting out. Right. right. She's yeah, not she's even attempting. I mean, okay, there is such a thing, and this is totally a thing called tonic immobility, where mm-hmm. when you're freaked out, you freeze up. But when the whole room is on fire, that's when you run. But she just sort of stands there with her, you know, mouth agape. I'm like, okay, come on, lady. This is the room is on fire. It's time to go. Anyway, that that aside there. And I think it's almost, there's some implication that she maybe is almost kind of losing it as well, because during the trial and then during the subsequent moments where you can kind of hear everybody getting riled up in the streets of Barcelona on Arnau's behalf, she basically just kind of locks herself into the house. She's sitting in like, like with all of the windows closed, like in darkness, except for a few tastefully placed candles around the room that will eventually bring about her death. Exactly. It's arguably, it would have made sense a while ago for her to say, you know, I've got a castle that's outside Barcelona. I'm going to go there. Yes, exactly. In fact, there's a there's a whole bit in there about, you know, she's going to like sign off on Arnau's freeing of the serfs. In exchange, she gets this, you know, fabulous palace in the in the um, Moncada Street, which is, right. a, you know, very the fanciest street in Barcelona at the time. But this, she's like, well, what am I going if you go back to Barcelona, I can't just stay here. What would I do in this castle by myself? I'm like, uh, lady, you would rule the territory. Yes, the like why didn't she want to do that. That, it, that that was totally a thing in the Middle Ages, yes. but apparently not in this movie. And very much in line with the kind of thing she seems like she would like to do. So it's Oh yeah, true. absolutely. She gets rid of her husband and she gets the castle Excellent. and she could like just go like in surf the surfs again or something like yeah, that. Okay. I don't know. Arnau and Mar. Mary. Ew. Ew. 
And some years later, along with their son, who of course comes with the Espanol birthmark. Of course, because that's how birthmarks work. Yes, finally witness the completion of the Church of Santa Maria del Mar. Yay, and everybody's happy, and everyone lives happily ever after, except for the people who are dead. And except for the yes, people except who are for watching us. And the show. people who watch the show. <laughs> but the church is pretty. Oh, the church is very pew. pretty. I, I highly recommend going to the church, everybody. Exactly. So at this point, I'm going to essentially, just because there's so much happening here, I want to do a little bit of a combined Vera et Falso, Historia et Veritas segment, where we are going to take a couple of uh, running themes over the course of the show and get into them in a bit more detail. We'll definitely not be covering everything. There's a lot, there's a lot of little details, right and wrong, that we'll miss. But that'll be, I think, a little easier to process and make sense of for everybody. But you wanted to start with a couple of things that you were excited that they actually got right. That they got right. Yeah, there are a couple of things that I thought, and I mean, I I already said, I think that the visual is generally very good. The acting, I think, was quite good, even Mm -hmm. if, you know, the characters did a great job with the material they were given. Um, But as far as sort of the things that are historically right here, first of all, the look of the city, even though it's not really shot in Barcelona most of the time. They do have a couple of good location shots at the church, in the forecourt of the King's Palace. There's a couple of little street scenes that are obviously shot behind the cathedral. But one of the things, like one of the first things that I really thought was, uh, that I really appreciated when we see the city, the first time we see the city is when Bernat in the first episode has little Arnau in his arms and he comes over at the top of the mountain range that surrounds, low mountain range that surrounds Barcelona, and we see him kind of looking down at the footprint of the city. And I would say they got this about like at least 85% right. There is a definitely, we see the, um, you see a very densely populated urban core Mm -hmm. surrounded by farmland and then sort of some, you know, ships kind of going back and forth. They also make a big deal at several points in this about the fact that even though Barcelona is the most important shipping hub in Catalonia, it does not have a proper port, nor mm-hmm. will it for the entirety right. of the 14th century. And the merchants are always complaining about this and trying to get the king <laughs> to fund a proper port. So they do a great job. I like the fact that the first view that we get within the city is in a market. Yeah. And it's this very kind of bustling market. Now, it's a little bit wrong here because at this point, the markets for things like fish and vegetables and bread and all these other things would have been separate in various mm-hmm. different parts of the city. Cinematically, though, it makes sense to kind of throw them all together. So you kind of show like lots of people milling around and getting things. And it's a really good establishing shot for kind of the bustle of a very populous city here. Likewise, one of the very last shots of the movie towards the end of where we see the the church being built, you get a shot, sort of an aerial shot of the Santa Maria del Mar and the Mm -hmm. very uh, crowded area around it. And you know what they get right? They get the medieval shoreline right. Right. right? Because if, if you go to Barcelona now and you're standing at that church, 
you've got an entire neighborhood called the Barceloneta that was built, I think, in the 19th century, maybe the 18th. I mean, it was partly silted up, but partly constructed. That didn't exist at all. Mm -hmm. The shoreline would have been pretty much right there at where the church was. Yeah. And they got that right. So obviously someone is doing their research there. Finally, there are a lot of little details about how the city works administratively despite the near absence of the Council of 100, which is its ruling body. (laughs) That also shows someone did their research. These things, these little details often in this come in the form of exposition dumps. Right. And that's the way it is in the novel too, Mm -hmm. which which is what irritated me enough to stop the second time. The one area where this obsession with details comes in really problematically is when they try to talk about law. Yes. And uh, this is a very, very much a recurrent theme throughout. If uh, you would have to, if you could, you know, take a few words that appear the most often and are the tagline of the show, it would be, es la ley, it's the law, es which they ley. say... All the time. This phrase gets repeated so often, it has to be a deliberate choice. It's like the filmmakers, or maybe the author, were going out of their way to say, look, it's not that medieval people, except for not in our now, were backward and ignorant. The whole system was backward and ignorant. Right. And so it's sort of doubling down on that cliche, and then it allows sort of our now to stand out. It's like, even when he has to enforce the law, he's like, the law is wrong. Right. Yeah, but there, uh, the, a lot of times the problems with the way they depict medieval law are not so much that, with with one except one big exception, it's not so much that they're reading the law wrong um, because there's lots of different laws here, but mm-hmm. they're taking it out of context right. and they're pulling random isolated laws from sources that wouldn't necessarily apply here. And uh, especially from this one 12th century uh, legal source called the Usaches of Mm -hmm. Barcelona, which is mainly drawn from a much, much, much older law code from, I think, the 7th century. Yeah. Plus, they throw in a few extra things about relationships between lords and vassals and that would not have been kind of the primary law that that affected most of Barcelona's Mm -hmm. population on a day-to-day basis so they'll just sort of like say "Ooh, that's a law that makes medieval people look weird and barbaric let's use that one right and they're very much ignoring the immense volume of uh, urban ordinances Mm -hmm. passed by the uh, non-existent Conseil de Sam so you know I mean I guess that makes sense Right, exactly. And there are, let's see, uh, there, yeah, there's urban ordinances, there's church law, mm-hmm. which we get a little bit of in the Inquisition trial in the last couple of episodes, but this church law especially uh, would have prevented this really problematic relationship yes, between so we ignore that. now and Mar because it's totally illegal to marry not only your godchildren or godparents, but anybody Mm -hmm. who's related to them within like four degrees of relation. It's like marrying your own family member, according to church law. So they kind of, they kind of twist the law in some places. In some places, they just get it wrong. Yeah. And one big area that I want to talk about with that is what we call the the mal's usus, the bad customs. So in particular, the customs associated with feudal lordship and the obligations that peasants owe their lords. 
And first of all, just to lead into something, I really want to emphasize we're not using euphemisms here. I feel like if this was something that, you know, Republicans in 21st century American America did, they'd call they would call them like the freedom customs. But in Catalonia, they're called the Maldives, <laughs> they're called the bad customs. They include yeah. what is referred to in Latin literally as the use mela tractandi, the right of mistreating your peasants. Right, exactly. And that's sort of what Bernat, or I'm sorry, Arnau is all about abolishing because yes. freedom. Right, because freedom. It also includes specifically, uh, just to mention a couple of the really big ones, two of them in Testia and Eshorkia both have to do with uh, issues surrounding inheritance. In Testia is that if you die without making a will, if you die intestate, that the Lord gets to confiscate part of your property so that, you know, if you just didn't get around to making a will for whatever reason, and, uh, you know, you're, but you, you know, have uh, immediate descendants, that's still, you know, potentially too bad, you're still going to have a chunk of your property get taken by the Lord. You also, if you do not have descendants, uh, or at least direct descendants, then in that case as well, the Lord, even if you do make a will, gets one third of your stuff, as opposed to say, if you want wanted to, you know, give your brother everything or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, then Kugusia, which is that if a uh, wife of a peasant is found guilty of adultery, the Lord gets to charge a fine, essentially, for her adultery. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of three of the big ones. You'll notice. What they do not yeah. include. Yeah. What they course. do not include is the so-called right of the first night, the Lord's right to... Uh, have sex with the peasant's wife on the night of their wedding. This does not appear in any of the actual many sources that talk about these feudal customs. It does seem to have been something that there are a couple of indications that in the revolt of the Ramensa peasants in the 15th century, that it kind of popped up in like one thing as an accusation that was made. Mm -hmm. But it was never an acknowledged legal custom. Right. And the fact that it was made as an accusation, that particular one, is sort of an indication that this was illegal. Yeah. And everybody knew it. Yeah. Right? This is, and this is not that the custom is abusive. It's that this Lord is abusive. Right. And I'll, you know... I don't always necessarily defend the medieval church, and in a bit I'm going to definitely not be defending the medieval church, but they would have had something to say about this. Oh, absolutely. They're not really pro-adultery. Yeah, no, they're pro-adultery. They're not pro-rape. Right. They're, for their they're many big, problems, right. They're not pro-rape. They're pro -rape. big on consent for sex. Yeah. Right? I mean, they have some problems as to how they define consent. Yes. But um, they are big on consent for mutual consent. Right. right. And certainly on even when there are problematic definitions of consent, the way they're problematic tends to be that they will sometimes, not always, but in certain cases, allow the consent of a woman's essentially kind of man in charge of her father or husband, that to matter in some ways over the consent of the woman herself. In this particular case, he's clearly not consenting either. Right, exactly. There's there's just all... Yeah, problems with consent are throughout this whole series. Yeah, um, And they, they, get, they get that wrong. And this is one of the things, I mean, before we dive into the women and gender point, is that a lot of the times their use of law 
here, the author's use and then later the filmmaker's use of uh, medieval law here gets things a little bit wrong, a little bit decontextualized, but the places where it goes totally off the rails are, as far as I can tell, invariably about mm-hmm. law that mm-hmm. results in the physical or sexual mistreatment of women. Yes, that that again and again, that that's presented. And, and that is one of the things that I find so frustrating is that this combination of laws that are real and then laws that are myths are invented or really kind of weird interpretations of things that they just get all blended together. So that there's a kind of like, let's list the bad feudal customs and include the use prime noctis. Let's like use the same like as la ley when talking about, uh, you know, other kind of weird choices. So, so let's get into this. Let's get into the questions of women and gender. Oh, should we start with show. the adultery box? Should we yes. start with the adultery box? We've okay. got to start with the adultery box. And uh, so we should explain the adultery box, first of all. It is, in one case, I guess this guy has, and in one case, it is a hut. In the other case it, that we see it, uh, it is a just like box inside their hat, like in their living room. It's like that they just had lying around, apparently, you know, just it's like it was the dog crate or something. <laughs> right. Like and, that. and that's what it looks like. It looks like a dog crate. Right. Exactly. Except without a hole to look out of. The hut has a very small hole because Juan's mother has her little teeny tiny hole that she at least can reach her hand out of and pat Juan on the head. Right, exactly. And so when Sarah and I both saw this, we're like, what is with this adultery box? And it actually rang a faint bell to me. And I figured out the article that I'd found it in. And I tracked that back to the sources. Okay, so there is, this starts us back with like the, that code, the Usache, as I was talking about. And in that code, it says that, you know, if there is, you know, if a woman commits adultery, and she can't acquit herself through trial by ordeal, which would have been over and done with by the 14th century, but in the 12th century, it was still a thing. Then she is going to be surrendered to the custody of her husband. And basically he can, you know, do what he wants with it. He can't kill her. He can't kill her, but he can, you know, she's basically the law says she's surrendered to the, she and her goods are surrendered to the custody of her husband. So she forfeits her dowry and, and all of this. In 1330, there is one, count of one, legal opinion issued by the king of the crown of Aragon at that time, basically qualifying what a particular husband in a particular case that's being litigated can do. And it outlines and it says, okay, you know, the space you imprison her in has to be at least this large, and you have to make sure she's got this much food, and you can't, through maltreatment or neglect, allow her to die or be injured or maimed or anything like that. So it's, you know, conditions of her imprisonment. So there is actually one instance in law where there is, you know, what looks like sort of a in-home confinement. Right. And you have to put like straw down that she can sleep in. There's literally, it's like you have to dig a hole for her latrine. There are just all sorts of little details in there, which is really fascinating. But it is a single case. And the king's pronouncements on this do have the force of law. So you could imagine maybe somebody later drawing on this. Mm-hmm. Chronologically in the series, we see the adultery box in the series about 20 years before this ruling was issued. Right, But it's 
also, like I said, the usaches are not necessarily going to be the main law that people are mm-hmm. going to have recourse for. There are a lot of things in adultery law that would have been much more common. For example, a husband can legally separate from his wife, mm-hmm. basically throw her out in the street, but keep her dowry. Right keep custody of any children they might have. And so this effectively renders her, if her parents won't take her back in, renders her homeless and impoverished, which is a pretty uh, severe punishment there. And there are, you know, other sorts of punishments or consequences of adultery, which we should say in secular law, not church law, is a crime that women commit. It's not a crime mm-hmm. that men right. commit. By right? definition, very, yes. It is very gendered. I don't want anybody to come away from this thinking, oh, well, those two, they're always trying to say that, you know, men and women were totally equal. They're not. They're absolutely right. not. There is sexism built into, woven into the fabric of medieval law. And the reasons for that are manifold. But the adultery box packs a visual punch and it's it's not chosen by the filmmakers, I don't think, because it was typical or chosen by the author because it's typical because this was in the book. It's chosen to make a point about medieval brutality towards women Mm -hmm. in particular, right? Which is, you know, while it isn't super duper to be a woman in the Middle Ages. It's also not all beatings and adultery boxes. Right. And it's not constant rape the way it is presented as well as being in this film, that there are... There are four different women who are raped. That does not mean four rapes. I meant four women who are raped, Mm -hmm. I believe. Yes. Yeah, it is pretty bad. And sometimes repeatedly. There's also this, uh, speaking of which, there is the... Rape and Subsequent Marriage of Mar, which is another, this is where they just plain get the law wrong. And here Uh they're going back to Usach's, this law code from the 12th century I was talking about. And helpfully, the dialogue actually cites the specific custom in there. So I was able to go right to it. And if you look at the film, it says that, you know, either the woman or her guardian has to consent to the marriage. The law says... If the woman and her guardians consent to uh-huh. the marriage, right, they and not or that out exactly. This is and that and is really really yes. important because Mars not consenting to this. Oh here. no, she is very <laughs> overtly verbally not consenting, and yet seemingly nobody in this scene—not Arnau, not Mar, not Juan, who's a Dominican, not. Anybody seems to know this. So this was this was a deliberate yes, choice. You can't absolutely. miss that and. It's a very short law. It's not right. difficult. And it very much seems like a choice that's very much designed to, again, even the fact that this law exists, it's not great. It's not a great law. And obviously, even if a woman did consent, she would very possibly be doing so verbally, but under a variety of social and familial pressures, Etc. So nobody is saying that this is good, but it's not as awful as it's depicted here. Mm-hmm. That could be our motto for this whole podcast. The Middle Ages, not quite as awful. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> my students 
sometimes ask me, they're like, wouldn't you love to live in the Middle Ages? I'm like, nope, 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 yep, no. There's no. all sorts of reasons. Um, I, I like antibiotics. I like vaccines. But gender is also one of those reasons. And yet these filmic depictions of gender always have to go way mm-hmm. over the top with how brutal it was. And we could, if we had a whole nother hour or two or three of podcasts, talk about the ways in which women's situation was actually in many ways really good. And also I would say, you know, there are specific ways that, would, I mean, there are specific ways also that I find fascinating, especially as a historian of women's economic lives, that there are specific ways in which there are things that women can do in specifically Catalonia in the 14th century that they can't do in America in the 1950s. Yes. And it's not a straight line of things getting better. Like make their, like take out their own loans. Take out their own loans, own property. Yeah, exactly. So there also, I will note, uh, you know, there's an immense amount of just casual men physically and sexually abusing their wives, which certainly is something that canon law allows that as justification for women to take their dowry and separate from their husbands. They can't remarry, but they can live apart. Right. They can do that. It it has to reach a certain level. Um, A husband could chastise his life, but there's some very specific things. He can't leave her dead, maimed, or blind. Um, Mm -hmm. But then there's this sort of very flexible category of cruelty. And if a woman can prove that her husband is cruel, and this is often a matter of community opinion, then she could sue for separation and take her dowry and set up a separate household. She might even be able to get custody of any children they have. You cannot also, there's also the issue of marital rape, which if a woman, you know, for men and women, this is one of the areas of canon law um, that's, uh, that maybe has a different definition of consent that we do. Mm-hmm. Once that you consent to sex with your spouse the first time, that becomes a perpetual consent. Right. Yeah. And that applies to, in canon law, in church law, for both men and women. But Mar never consented to the first sexual encounter mm-hmm. with her husband. So technically, every time he has sex with her afterwards, he's raping her repeatedly. And that's a big no-no. The same is arguably true for Elidas. Yeah, I think so. I it's think a little questionable. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We don't really get the behind the scenes there right. as much. Right. It's definitely true for Francesca and Bernat mm. in the beginning, yeah. though. Ugh, yeah. Although there's Definitely no evidence true. that they ever have sex again. That's true. That's true. Because Bernard's a nice guy. He only raped her once. Yeah, exactly. Just the one time. You were Speaking of sex, uh, you were going to say something about sex with Jewish women. Yes. So uh, before we get into some other discussions of Jews in general, I wanted to note, so uh, there is this kind of whole episode, and one of the things that sparks this inquisitorial trial is that Arnau is accused of having a Jewish lover. And this is presented as a big no. It's kind of not that big of a no. Jewish and Muslim men are punished very severely, potentially executed, for having sex with Christian women. It's very much gendered in terms of the way that the law sees this, that uh, it essentially wants the religious hierarchies to map onto the gender hierarchies. And that applies to Muslim men and Christian women as well. Yes, yes. 
in practice, it is. Uh, it, there are certainly cases in which even when it does happen, the men are pardoned. Uh, there are relatively few cases in the Crown of Aragon where such sexual activity actually resulted in an execution. But regardless, I will note, it's actually not an inquisitorial matter. It's, uh, you know, this would be a kind of royal, you know, this would be a royal matter. Also, to the extent that a Christian man isn't supposed to have sex with a Jewish woman, this is actually something that Jewish communities basically get as a concession to them, that they don't want it to be legally yes. acceptable for Christian men to have sex with, quote, their women. Mm-hmm. So they demand this and or ask for this as a concession from the king and uh, get it. But still, nobody's going to be executed. It's punishable by fine. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not an inquisitorial matter. No. This is not something that the Inquisition is dealing with at all. This would be something that would go to a royal court. Right, exactly. It could, it could like speak to a, a, a sort of a matter of character, perhaps, mm-hmm. but it's not a charge from right. the Inquisition. The right. only, in the time when you most see the Inquisition caring about that sort of thing is in the case of, say, somebody who is Jewish, who, who was Jewish, who converted to Christianity and is still married to your Jewish wife. And they're a little worried that, you know, she's maybe influencing you to continue practicing Judaism. Right, right, exactly. So they'll then pressure him to get rid of her. Right, or conversely, pressure for her to convert. Right, as well. one way or the other, right. Mm-hmm. But that this idea that is going to be this uh, serious charge that's going to bring you up before the Inquisition, that you're having sex with a Jewish woman, is is nothing. One of the things I, I just I, that just occurred to me as you were talking about it, the Jews and Muslims in this are basically sexless. Yes, that is true. We know Hastai uh, must have had sex at some point because he has two children. Twice. Yes. Uh, yeah, but we actually never see his wife. His daughter, mm-hmm. Rachel, is the only Jewish woman who's actually a character. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the two Muslim characters as well. The three, because we've got Habiba, Dawaha, and Sahat. Right. Yeah, so they never have, as far as we know, they never have sex. They never have any relationships other than with Arnav. Right. And nobody has any relationships except with Arnau, but... (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) So let's now get into the Jewish community as depicted in this show. I will say credit where credit is due. I have a lot of thoughts about the exclusion of Jews from a lot of narratives where the presence of Jews would actually make sense and add a lot to the story and Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps save you from, you know, making big errors like saying that the result of the Black Death was witch persecution, you know, mm, things yeah. like that. So I appreciate that. I will give this show credit. Mm-hmm. But I do find it frustrating that in the vast majority of cases in which Jews appear, it's only in these moments of really dramatic persecution. and ignores the everyday reality that within limits, Jews are fairly integrated into the social and economic life of the city. They live in the center of the city. They're not actually required even to live in the Jewish quarter. Most Jews live in the Jewish quarter, but not all do. They are allowed to live outside. They're allowed to and certainly do own property outside the Jewish quarter. And they are constantly involved in various kinds of social and economic interactions with Christians, which are presented as sort of taboo. 
And this is, I think this is the filmmakers here are definitely using this to play up Arnau's relationship as exceptional and a sign mm-hmm. that he is enlightened as opposed to everybody around him. Basically. And in particular, our villainous Eleonora is presented as being very hostile to the Jews. Mm-hmm. And we see this in his Inquisition trial as well, where he mm-hmm. is being very ecumenical. Yes. And this is presented as shocking to everyone yes. that um, a Christian could think that Jews, Jews are people. Just Jews are people too. Exactly. They're just like us. And just like us is maybe a little like, I'm not sure it's heretical per se, but it's a little like, mm, it's yeah. kind of questionable. But, mm-hmm. you know, saying Jews are people and doing business with Jews, those are presented as being kind of taboo and strange when they're really not. Mm-hmm. The Jewish community is also depicted as exclusively comprising doctors, moneylenders, and people involved in the slave trade. Uh, which is a whole weird Jewish stereotype. And, and Jews were involved in the slave trade, but there's this like, there are like weird narratives about Jews being like the drain drivers of the slave trade. Yeah, not, uh, no, not, not at true. all. Not even close. Excluding the fact that, you know, we, it is the case that money lending tends to be disproportionately represented in the documents that we have, just because of, uh, it's the kind of thing that requires notarial registration. You have to get a contract that has to be registered at the Christian notary when you as a Jew make a loan to a Christian. But Mm -hmm. we have enough references that we know that there are other things Jews are doing as well. Jews are really involved in the uh, silk industry in Barcelona. Jews are involved in uh, coral cutting, apparently including uh, making uh, coral rosaries, which I always find fun. Ah, interesting. And of course, you know, you have... Jewish bakers and mm-hmm. Jewish butchers and just everything you need for yeah. for a community. And Christians went to these Jewish butchers sometimes too. They had a special stall right outside the doors of the Jewish community that Christians could actually purchase meat at. And there's a lot of regulations around that. Yes. One of the things, essentially because uh, the way Jewish dietary laws work, butchers you know, essentially you have to slaughter animals in a very particular way. And if you do it wrong, Jews can't eat that meat. And so then there's a Mm -hmm. lot of like, on the one hand, it's essentially impossible for you to earn a living as a Jewish butcher. If every time you screw up, you have to throw the whole thing out. It essentially relies on you being able to sell to Christians. But there's also a Mm -hmm. few weird feelings here and there about like Jews selling their cast offs to Christians. Right, exactly. Like, well, if, but it's not good enough for you, but it's good enough for me. Yeah. So there is, there's definitely there. But you know, there are a lot of people who are going to be looking for bargains, I suppose. There's, right. there's also a very weird scene where, like, uh, in I think the second episode, like the little boy of the family that has taken Bernat and are now in is on the verge of death, and somebody in the household says. We need to get the Jewish doctor. And someone says, what will the neighbors think? And I'm like, Perfectly the neighbors normal. will think, the neighbors will think I mean, that, wow, these people have enough money to get the Jewish doctor. Good um, for them. Because Jewish, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if Jewish physicians are good enough for the royal court, then probably your reputation yeah. as a You'll pot maker is not going to take a huge <laughs> hit. Right. And anyway. so it's just, yeah, there's this insistence on it being completely taboo to have any interaction with Jews. Oh, I wanted to talk about the names of our Jewish characters, all three of them. Oh, yes, exactly. Haftai Kreskas. That is a conceivable Jewish name. It's a conceivable Jewish name because, okay, well, 
certainly it's possible that there was another Hastai Crescas. I find it to be a weird choice in that there is a super famous Hastai Crescas who mm. is not this person because he was not born until 1340-ish. Now, his, he does, however, the famous Hastai Crescas, and I was looking that up because the name rung a bell. His father, not surprisingly, is also named Hastai Crescas. Um, Which does make sense. And he would have been at about the right time, but this Hastai Crescas is a Talmudist. He's not right. a money changer who is also somehow a merchant. And he doesn't have, right, and he doesn't have a son who's named Hastai. No, exactly. Exactly. He His dies name. before that happens. Yes. Right. The son is Joseph, which is a very popular Jewish name. The daughter is Raquel, which is not a very popular Jewish name in this period. There's this constant assumption, essentially, that you see in a lot of things that the names that, that are still common for Jewish women in particular now must have also been the names that were common in the Middle Ages. But in fact, mm -hmm. biblical names in general for Jewish women are very rare. I, I don't think I've actually seen a Raquel at all. I've seen a couple of Sarahs, but mm -hmm. Catalan names are much more common. They're just Catalan names that are a little different from the names that Catalan Christians use. Like Bonadona is like a real popular choice. I think that there's a lot of Bonadonas. So and, many Bonadonas. Um, what, what's the other one that we keep running into? Um, uh, Regina. Oh, yeah. And Regina or Reina. Yeah. So queen. I think that the biblical names may be more common in the Eastern Mediterranean. According to Goytain, at least, they're actually not super common there either. No? Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. I yeah. didn't know that. I'd run across a couple, and so I just assumed. But okay, learn something that they, I mean, so there, there's not zero, but that there's a lot that have these names that are like, uh, I think if I'm remembering correctly, like Sita al which is like Arabic for like mistress of the household. Oh, interesting. That's nice. I'm going to start calling myself that. Right. So yeah, so that there's a lot of these names for Jewish women that are actually names in that are kind of in the local vernacular, essentially. They're just, as I said, different from the names necessarily that the women of the majority faith have, but that they're not actually using biblical names, which I always find really interesting. And it's something mm -hmm. that nobody ever gets right. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's so many Rachels in particular. It's like, oh, Rachel, that's a that's a name that Jewish women have. Exactly. They're all named Rachel or Sarah. Yep. But so I do want to talk about some of these moments that we do see of uh, these dramatic moments of persecution, which do have some basis in reality. There were massacres of uh, Jews who were blamed for, for the plague. I find it strange again, are now is presented as this like lone voice of toleration, when in fact, like the king is really concerned about this. Mm -hmm. It's not just like I'm now doing this like one secret dangerous thing that's going to get him in trouble. This is actually arguably something that could have been presented as something that might get him in good with royal officials. Right. And there's a reason for that, because the royal officials can arbitrarily tax the Jewish communities in the way that you can't due to, you know, the other citizens of Barcelona because of their privileges there. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of public order as well, yes. which a lot of medieval law is very concerned about. Yes. And then there's this host desecration accusation, which is based very loosely on a real accusation from 1367, but then there's a lot of difference in details. So in terms of how this actual situation went down, 
there's a Christian thief at Perefuster who confessed that he stole, uh, you know, a silver, a pix, basically a container for hosts, and that because he stole this container, then it had hosts in it, then he allegedly went to the Jewish quarter and sold the hosts there and got 12 florins, 60 shillings for them, supposedly, which is pretty good. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. He did not know the name initially of the person who he claimed was the Jew who had bought the hosts from him, but then identified this person by sight. It's nobody named Haste Crescas. There was a man named Provencal de Pieta, who then basically there's this whole chain where under torture, these Jews confessed to buying it, but then saying, well, but then I sold it to somebody else. I'm not the one who, you know, did something with it. So that he said he sold it to a man named Astrubiona, who then said also under torture that he sold it to uh, two other Jews named Salamosa Skelta and Mosa Badrut Gayat. This isn't actually, again, an inquisitorial case. The whole process is pursued by, by Prince Juan, who was acting as governor general at the time. And he then personally oversaw the execution of uh, the thief. There's actually another Christian thief who's his accomplice. He also gets executed. And all of the Jews, these three Jews who were accused, or, or three of the four Jews who were accused, uh, one of them died under torture and therefore didn't get a chance to be publicly executed. And then it's actually after this whole process, so three people have already been executed, that then Peta, Juan's father, shows up and he says that you should imprison the Jews in the Kai for three days. And this seems to really just be essentially him being annoyed that he thinks Juan has overreached by doing all of this without even bothering to tell him until it was over. That Juan doesn't write his father and say any of this happened until these, like, in total, five people have already been executed. Right, exactly. And there is, there's a lot of kind of father-son tension yes. in the history of yes. the House of Barcelona and who gets to do what to who when. And a lot of time, and we do a lot of times sort of the, the sons when they're crowned prince, they're basically given Catalonia as yeah. sort of like a little training ground. They're like, here, you try ruling this for a little while. And so they have the authority of the king to do this, but the kings are not always happy with mm -hmm. the way that their sons are running things and vice versa. Yeah. To, to really show the fact that it's not about the Jews, he sort of gives this order. They're locked up for three days. Then, and then Peta pops back in and says, they're all, they've all been proven innocent. It's fine. Yeah. Oh, well, that's nice. So he basically cuts the legs out from under his sons and says, yeah, sorry. Sorry about those five people you executed. But, right. Yeah. But again, the Inquisition is never involved. This is presented mm. again as at least in part an inquisitorial matter, and it's really not, in part because the Inquisition in general typically really only has jurisdiction over essentially Jews who or people who were once Jews who have converted to Christianity. If they then are secretly practicing Judaism, that's not acceptable, and that is an inquisitorial matter. And sometimes they go after Jews who are being accused of facilitating that, of uh, uh, essentially either encouraging Jews to revert to Judaism, converts to revert to Judaism, or enabling their secret practice of Judaism in some way. Which is one of the really big misconceptions about, you know, the yes. Spanish Inquisition, which mm -hmm. is not what we're seeing here. That's right. different yes, from we are pre Inquisition, Inquisition, which is probably a good time for us to start talking about Inquisition too, right? Yes. So let's now talk about the Inquisition. First of all, I love the biggest actual issue in things that we see are now due that the Inquisition would care about 
is the fact that he is knowingly harboring Sahat, a person who has converted to Christianity, but who is still effectively living as a Muslim. Yes. And knowingly is really very much the case yes. here. I mean, he never calls him Guillem unless there are Christians around. And at one point he like busts in on Sahat, who's on a rug at his prayers. And Arnaud's like, dude, it's totally cool. And it is especially odd because I'm pretty sure he calls him Sahat in front of Eleanor, who is certainly not as so uh, generous oh. toward him. Oh, I miss that. Yeah, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure he does at some point refer to him as Sahat to her, and she doesn't pick up on this either. And Mar calls him Sahat as well. Mm -hmm. So everybody knows he's Sahat. Yes. So first there's that. There's also, of course, the fact that, again, Jews aren't heretics. The terms are used completely interchangeable, and they're not. They don't like the Jews, but they're not heretics. Again, if you are a convert who's secretly practicing Judaism, crypto-Judaism, or that could be called heresy. That is, an, at least certainly, it's an inquisitorial matter. It's arguably mm -hmm. heretical. That's a problem. But just if you're a Jew and you were born a Jew and you're practicing Judaism... That's not heresy. Right. Now, arguably, Juan, his brother Juan, is he's a member of the Inquisition. And this is not the Spanish Inquisition. It's actually, you know, Dominicans mostly going after heretics. And he's kind of set up into the Pyrenees Mountains to talk to, like, the mountain village people and, you know, make sure that their religious practice is on the up and up. And, you know, that checks out to me, yeah. right? I mean, this yeah. is where you would find kind of these isolated pockets of people who did consider themselves good Christians, mm -hmm. but they've got their own interpretation of Christianity. And Christianity is really not a unitary thing at this time. Right. The only really big difference, it's not that there are more heretics at this time. The issue at this point is that that the church, the, the Christian church now has the apparatus to try and make ever bring everybody's beliefs and practices into line. And that's what Inquisition is all about in yes. this period. It's a way of get as a legal procedure, it's a way of getting at what they like to call hidden crimes, you know, crimes for which there's not a complaining witness. Mm -hmm. And it's actually developed uh, or redeveloped from Roman law, not to go after heretics, but rather to go after priests with girlfriends. Right. And right. that's its first major use, mm -hmm. is to go after clerical misconduct that nobody is really complaining about. Mm -hmm. And then it's very quickly repurposed to use against Inquisition, in, uh, against heretics, and then later against converted Jews and Muslims who, who have converted to Christianity, but they believe are secretly practicing their own religion. And the one thing I will say in favor of this depiction is that they do seem to know that this is the Papal Inquisition and not the Spanish Inquisition, that there's a bit in the weird armed insurrection against the Inquisition, where they refer to it as this kind of papal, you know, imposition by a foreign pope. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other thing, but... It is at least, they are at least correct about the fact that this is controlled ultimately by the papacy and not by the rulers of the crown of Aragon. Right, exactly. With the Dominicans as sort of their arm in this. Yes. And I want to talk as well about the specific figure of Nicolau Eimerich, who is uh, at this time the inquisitor 
the kind of central inquisitor in this region and who is uh, presented as a really not too charming figure. And I, I will say, you know, he's probably a little bit more cartoon villain than he really was, but he wasn't great. No, he was, he was a piece of work. He was pretty bad. So fun fact, there is a Dominican nun who in 1388 claimed to have heard him say that if he wanted to, he would put the best Christian in the whole world to the flames. Ooh, yeah, okay, that is some mustache twirling villainy right there. Right, and in the context of basically he shows up in Valencia and is trying to uh, get Valencia in line, and they're just having none of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, so this guy also, he keeps having this conflict with both uh, uh, Peta and then with his son Juan eventually. He gets exiled twice. Yes, and then he keeps getting reappointed, too. Right. Yeah. Yes. Is yes. He keeps getting brought back, but he's gotten exiled twice. He also has this other really charming quote. This is a direct quote from him on heresy: "The death of the sheep is the life of the lion, and the destruction of grass is the life of the sheep." Without litigations, why would there be judges? When and how was the patience of the martyrs revealed, if not during persecution by the tyrants? Then how can the inquisitor's glory manifest itself, if not for the malice of the heretics? The increase of heretics therefore reveals the faithful doctors. Oh, okay. That's, that is pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Yeah. So he, uh, he's, he's pretty awful. They're, they're not exaggerating that much, to be honest. No, no, he's definitely, he, he, yeah, yeah. And the other thing I will note is that, so uh, part of the accusations against Arnau include the fact that his mother is being accused of being a witch and he's being accused of being devil spun. Mm-hmm. And some of the details in there are a little, little, little early for this mm-hmm. period. But I will note that Eimerich is actually one of the early figures who, as an inquisitor, demonstrates an interest, which you see in his work, the Directorium Inquisitorum, that he's demonstrating this early interest in sorcery and demonology and in linking these to heresy. Right. And the, uh, we should say, too, the Directorium Inquisitorum is part of a genre of, yes. uh, not a large genre, but a genre of medieval inquisitors handbooks and they're mm-hmm. basically procedural manuals how do you do this right how do you do this legally according to canon law and i think you can trace a line a pretty direct line from those inquisitorial handbooks to this famous book in the 1470s the malleus maleficarum yes. or the hammer of witches which in addition to reproducing some, you know, here's some wild tales we've heard about weird things witches do, that also kind of lays out the legal procedure. Mm-hmm. And the legal procedure for trying a suspected witch is inquisitorial yes. procedure. It's going after hidden crimes. It's just with some very specific new things added mm-hmm. to it. And we do see some amount of inquisitorial procedure here, although... Uh... Some some of it works and some of it's a little fuzzy. Mm-hmm. There's a moment where he's allowed to name his enemies. He actually accurately mm-hmm. pinpoints who his main accuser is as being his wife. Mm-hmm. And this then goes into this whole thing about the fact that he's never slept with his wife. But it is actually the point of being asked to name your enemies is because that then does undermine their testimony. Right, exactly, because you can't, there. there's this whole thing in medieval where you have to swear when you're a witness, you have to say that you're motivated by neither love nor hate right. of the person you're testifying about, and that's a fairly standard thing that 
witnesses to fact have to swear to as a part of any sort of an inquest, whether it's, you know, heresy or any sort of a criminal inquest at all. So it is right. it is kind of interesting to see that these things, you know, did operate by a set of rules, even though they're rules that we wouldn't necessarily want applied today. I certainly wouldn't anyway. Right. And I will note also that there are, of course, rules about torture. So again, you know, I'm not saying that it's good, but that torture is not just a kind of sadistic exercise, that they specifically talk about the circumstances under which torture can be applied. In particular, Imerich himself actually talked about the fact that it can only be something that is introduced in the absence of other forms of proof, and uh, also recommended applying it moderately and without effusion mm -hmm. of blood. Right, because he recognized, and he is one of the many people to recognize that, you know, confessions you get under torture are basically worthless. Yeah. And they're also very difficult procedurally because a confession given under torture, according to the inquisitorial procedural law, is not valid unless you can get the person to repeat it the next day when they're not being tortured or threatened with torture. Right. I mean, we could say the threat's implicit, but it does make things a little less sort of straightforward there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are, there are limitations around it. Yes. Not that we're trying to make Inquisition seem right. warm and fuzzy, but it's also not quite as cartoonish. You even have like the evil church music as the Inquisitors are processing in, right. in this scene. It's the one time where you have like the monastic chorus going, oh. Right. I also find it hilarious that when everyone got the end kind of bursts into the church to dramatically rescue our now, they all like scurry down into the crypt and it's this little yes! like- Yes! Oh my gosh, here they come, here they come. And then everybody scurries out and they leave Francesca just standing yes! there. Like, okay, she's on trial for witchcraft still. Did you guys forget this? Yeah, we just right? completely forgotten her. And I guess she just leaves. She disappears for like, she's done. That's her last scene is they've left yeah. her standing there. So we don't know what happens to her. I will actually say one thing about Francesca's testimony that I really liked is that her argument is just, you've got the wrong Francesca. Yeah, it must have been some other whore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But she's like, I'm Francesca like the Ribas, not Francesca Seva. Like, sorry. Yeah, yeah, she's smart. She knows that she, that like they could probably find people to say knows she's Francesca, but she's like, no, we're all named Francesca, which is a valid yes, point. <laughs> which I love because there actually is a case. Uh, so Arnau is also a very common name. Oh my and goodness. there is actually a case that I came across that I think is hilarious about this guy who's accused of, I believe, piracy. And he says, it's not me. It was another Arnau. <laughs> and that's his defense. That's, and it really could have been. And it's even something I can't remember. Arnau. And I can't remember what the last name but is, but it was even like, it was also something that was kind of very common. And it was like, I think it was Arnau Fedad. And it was like, nope, sorry, oh, it was geez. another Arnau Fedad. And it's like, yeah, fair. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> a couple other things I wanted to note about religion. One is that I find it hilarious that Juan, at first it's like, you know, just like he's becoming a priest and then he's a Franciscan and then he's a Dominican. And they're just like very casual about the fact mm -hmm. that he's just like passing through these various orders which you know have different expectations and which are you know different in terms of you know your like you have to take different vows like you don't just wander from one to the other 
Right. You could change orders mm-hmm. with the permission of the order you were in and yes. the order you were going to. There is procedure for changing orders. But it, it, this first stuck out to me because they said, you know, at the very beginning, Juan is like, I want to go off to the university. Please send me to Bologna. Later, we find out he's going to be an inquisitor. He and a Dominican, he probably would have gone to Paris. Yes. That's where you learn theology. If you're going to Bologna, you're not studying theology. You're not on the path to being an inquisitor. You're on the path to being a lawyer. Right. And maybe a church lawyer, but uh, a lawyer nonetheless. And so you're probably going to be at Paris, but that's neither right. here nor there, I don't think. Right. I do like the emphasis on Mary and devotion. We're uh-huh. in a period where devotion to the Virgin Mary is uh, very powerful and strong. And uh, so I actually liked the fact that, you know, we we see are now praying all the time. Mm-hmm. And I liked that even though he's uh, modern, he's sort of modernly ecumenical, he's not modern, he's not a modern atheist, which you often see in heroic figures in things said in right. the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, they're often, that's how we signal modernity is that their religion doesn't run very deep. And for right. our now, it definitely runs deep. He's really devoted, you know, so yeah, I think I appreciated that as well. I did like that. And I just say a couple of words about the Church of Santa Maria del Mar, which uh, again, real church. I highly recommend that people, yes. once traveling, once people are traveling, that people go and see Santa Maria del Mar, which mm-hmm. is a stunning church. It's a church also that is uh, very architecturally consistent because it was built relatively quickly. So quickly. It was it took like, what, 50 years or something yeah. like that? Which, yeah. You know, and there were a bunch of, there was, there were multiple outbreaks of plague, multiple famines, multiple wars, and they got that thing up in record time. The cathedral in Cologne still isn't done. Right. Um, and so right. <laughs> um, it really, it is absolutely amazing. Yeah how quickly that thing went up. And part of it is due to the labor of the volunteer labor of these pastachos. Now, if you watch this film, you would think the pastachos were doing nothing but building the church and they weren't. They They were basically like, no, basically on Sundays on their day off, they could, Mm -hmm. you know, this was sort of their devotional labor and the rest of the week they're doing other things. But that free labor, the free stone which mm-hmm. is what blocks a lot from the King's Quarry, which is what blocks a lot of starts and stops a lot of massive yeah. medieval building projects, wasn't an issue here. It mm-hmm. did stop and start. It stopped for a while during the plague and right. in a couple of other times. But yeah, like 50 years or so is just lightning fast to get up a church of that size. Yeah, and there is also, you can see uh, that there is a uh, uh, kind of a relief sculpture that represents the Bustaishu's carrying stones oh, to, to build the church, which I love. Everybody everybody should go see the church. Uh, the, the one thing I will note is, of course, that it is, it is not a cathedral, uh, despite the name Cathedral of the Sea. They acknowledge in the show that it's not a cathedral. It's a basilica, which is just, it's, I mean, it's a big church. But a cathedral is specifically the seat of a bishop, which this church is not. Barcelona has a cathedral. It's Mm -hmm. not too far from Santa Maria del Mar. It's very pretty. You know, there is a bit in here, and I think you and I were talking about this earlier, of this idea we see once in here about Santa Maria del Mar being like the church of the people, Mm -hmm. right? The church of the Bastachus and the church of the people. And certainly it is built with, I mean, the the king's stone, but it's built with sort of local merchant wealth and funds. This was a way you'd show piety if you were wealthy, as you would donate lots of money. We see are now doing this. But it was not 
the only place that medieval people could go worship. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned this because I was actually standing outside a few feet away from one of these tour groups when the tour guide actually asserted mm -hmm. that until this church was built, the cathedral was just for nobles and there what? were no other churches in Barcelona. What? And nobody, until they had Santa Maria del Mar, unless you were a noble, you had no place to go to church. What? Yeah, I know. Exactly. Remember me saying I had to restrain myself several times from going and like shaking tour guides? That was one of the times. And first of all, there's so many parish churches in Barcelona. So many. And second, nobody is keeping you out of the cathedral. No. You, you probably don't get a seat. You probably stand in the back. Right, but of you can course, go. as you would in most places, right? Yeah. There aren't a lot of church pews in well, medieval yeah. churches. But there but yeah, it's it was absolutely incredible. But this was a source of civic pride, especially mm -hmm. for the merchants and the artisans and the craftspeople who worked on this church. It was a source of civic pride mm -hmm. that they had built this church. So it yeah. in that sense, yes, it's the people's church, but it's not like they were just biding their time for the entire medieval period without going to mass. Yeah. And so that then should lead into, let's talk a little bit about some of the ways in which social class and social mobility are depicted here. Mm -hmm. And in particular, this real emphasis, you know, on things like this is a people's church and on there being these ideas about a lot and about freedom and a lot about like, well, like we have this honor that's like different from the nobles and this like kind of very deep insistence on uh, this kind of identity which is uh, kind of hostile to a noble population. Well and this is one of the things that sort of runs throughout medieval media a lot. One of the things in which medieval media medieval theme media is very modern is the protagonists are always very modern in their social egalitarian mm -hmm. sensibilities in a way that may or may not have made sense. Now, I will say that for Barcelona at this time period, normally I kind of roll my eyes when you get like the, you know, the Mel Gibson going, freedom in Braveheart. But in this case, it semi-demi checks out. Because right. if you read sort of the documents of the merchant rulers mm -hmm. of Barcelona, they're constantly insisting on their freedoms and their privileges. And they're like, the king has to come, he has to defend our liberties, he cannot infringe on our liberties. This is over and over and over again. The city of Barcelona, Barcelona, Catalonia, as somebody who was there in October 2018, I can tell you they are still <laughs> doing oh, that. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, the, Cat the Catalans have not given up. Uh-huh. But there's also, I wouldn't say it's hostile to nobles, but for example, the ruling council of 100, titled nobles were prohibited right. from being counselors, right? Mm -hmm. This is, and this is very much something that's kind of baked into the governance of the city, that this mm -hmm. is not going to be a city run by the nobility, right? Mm -hmm. This is, we, and they've got specific privileges from the king that, you know, protect a lot of their own self-governance and their uh, their self-determinism as a way to run their own city. Actually, related to that, because Arnau is Arnau is ennobled before he becomes the consul of the sea. Is that an issue? 
No, because he's okay. Consul of the Sea, not a member of the Council. He's never a member of the Council of 100. And that's a totally, that's a totally So that's fine. Thing. For that, it's fine for you to be a member of for the For that, is, there's okay. no, there's no actual prohibition there because okay. it's a separate institution. There is overlap between people who serve on both of those, right. um, both of those institutions right. because they're going to be drawing from roughly the same pool mm-hmm. of people. Uh, the merchants are the counselors are the this or the that. You know, this is all mm-hmm. kind of very much woven together in the government of the city of Barcelona. But this idea of freedoms and liberties, it does, it kind of, like I said, semi-demi checks out. But the idea of freedom and liberty in a personal Mm -hmm. sense, we see that definitely in the, um, in historically, and I think you could speak to this in the way that the remenses, the peasants Mm -hmm. are saying you can't say I'm servile and subject me to these customs because I am not. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's even like a sense of liberty as it applies to an individual or a family mm-hmm. or a lineage that goes everywhere. Um, but that's not the same as, you know, freedom as the the way we think of it now in a, as a modern political concept. There are relations between the two, but it's not the same thing. And nor is it demanding really a kind of social equality or the end to economic inequalities. Oh, and in no. particular, it's important, I think, to acknowledge that these, you know, merchants who are talking about freedom, they're probably honestly wealthier than most of the nobility at this point, or of the lower nobility, certainly. Absolutely. And they also would have social mobility was a thing. In Barcelona at this time through, you know, making personal fortunes, through marriage. But it was, you know, we see a rapid, uh, the the progression of the social mobility, for example, of Grau Puig is nuts. He and his wife start off as basically, his wife is from a a family of serfs in Navarcles, out in the countryside. They get married. They've got enough of a dowry, so they move to Barcelona. He sets up a shop as a maker of these large sort of earthenware vessels that all the merchants need to transport their goods. And then he goes from there to investing his money in merchant things. And then soon he's remarrying a woman who's a member of the nobility, and he's mixing up parties with kings. And this is all happening in like within a couple of decades when it would have taken generations and even so would have sparked a lot of class resentment and we have at least one major incident in the middle of the 13th century in which a huge riot breaks out in Barcelona and part of the goal of that riot according to one historian uh, Stephen Bench is the assassination Mm -hmm. of a member of one of these parvenu families who has offended the nobles, or not the nobles, but the the merchant, the merchant patrician, by basically building himself a nice house on the nicest street in town Mm -hmm. and, you know, lording it over people as if he were one of them. Right. He's he's risen too far too fast, basically. Right. And that's interesting as well is that in that context, uh, Eleonor's hostility toward Arnau actually arguably makes a lot of sense. But what's interesting mm-hmm. is that Isabel does not have at all that kind of hostility toward marrying this. I can't remember what his background is exactly, but that certainly his wife had been from a servile mm-hmm. family. And that's and, you know, and she essentially also she adopts the children as her own. She doesn't seem to have any real. Right kind of question about that even. I mean, it's not even like, right. I could see her having her own children and then there have been a conflict about 
the fact that, you know, well, my children are the children who are of noble background and they should get more than your children who are with your surf wife. Mm -hmm. And that's just never a thing. No, exactly. It's not. Now, she manages to work up a good resentment towards Bernat and Arnell for exactly those reasons. Mm -hmm. But not, although at the beginning, when they first marry, she kind of looks down her nose at her husband. We're like, we'll see if he can keep me in the style to which I'm accustomed, basically. So in the beginning, she's a little bit snooty and doubtful, but she comes around. The second she gets her stable, she seems like she's basically fine. Absolutely. She wants the horses. Yeah. So there's a number of these kind of, uh, this kind of emphasis on social conflict, uh, which comes up as well in the, uh, in the grain riot. Yeah. And this is actually where one of the conspiracies comes in. One of the big conspiracies historically that we don't see portrayed in this particular cinematic depiction is that a few months before this grain riot breaks out, and it breaks out in mid-April of 1334, and a few months before this, like Christmas, there is this friar, he's a, a, a Carmelite, so they're another one of these orders of poor friars, and he's a super popular preacher in Barcelona, and he is preaches from the pulpit, mm-hmm. um, among other controversial sermons that he's given, he preaches from the pulpit that there is... It's not that there's a shortage of grain. God is actually punished. There is famine in the land and God is punishing Barcelona for the iniquities of its leaders who actually have plenty of grain. Mm -hmm. They are hiding away so they can jack up the prices because remember the counselors are also members generally of the merchant patrician, Mm -hmm. the upper classes in this town. And the people of Barcelona by this point have been having a hard time getting, it's like December, January, they've been having a hard time getting grain for months. And then this goes on for another three months. Mm -hmm. And finally what sets it off is, is a whole nother story. It has nothing to do with a friar, but people are primed to believe that the council itself is responsible for hoarding mm-hmm. grain and holding it back. And we do see that depicted here where, yeah. you know, the, the wealthy people are able to kind of like cut the line and get a sack of grain mm-hmm. held back for them. Whether or not this kind of hoarding was actually going on or was just rumored, we don't really know. Yeah. We know that that hoarding, that the council took hoarding very, very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, they punished it really severely. And they were doing everything they could to get grain to the city. Yeah. But at least historically, the class resentment in here, it, that's really anachronistic term, so please pardon me. Mm-hmm. But the suspicion that the authorities were actually profiteering from the famine was widespread in Barcelona at this time. Yeah, and so this is definitely, I think, an area that I think is interesting that there are a number of things that they get right. They just use a lot of language of uh, certain kinds of, or they sort of use a lot of, they kind of map onto some of these real class conflicts, some of these modern ideas as well about social equality as an ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. And that it has a kind of odd mix of those two things. Right. I mean, it's a, this typical presentism that we see yeah. in historical films. We should also point out that the author of the novel is himself. He either was or currently still is, and he's written a couple other novels since then, a practicing lawyer. 
Mm. Oh, no wonder he likes the law so much. It's true. And it's entirely possible that in some like undergraduate course in pre-law, he was exposed to like the history of law of Barcelona and got exposed to the Usaches and nothing else in this in like a big survey. And so maybe that stuck with him and he just remembered bits of it a little bit wrong. This is, I can't decide if that makes me more or less excited about the plan that I have been formulating to teach a medieval law course uh, in the hopes of getting some of the pre-law students interested. Yeah, exactly. We've got to watch <laughs> what we say, right? Because they will remember the one weird law. Yep. <laughs> they That's will lovely. remember the one... Es la ley. They will remember the one weird law and they will remember it wrong. Right. All of a sudden we've got like five books about adultery boxes. It's the adultery box. That is just what I was going to say. Okay. So I think with that, uh, we can go ahead and move into the Fabula Nostra segment where we talk about the story that we might want to see, I think perhaps instead of or in addition to this one. Yes, I think that that would be just fine. Do you want to go first? Yeah, sure, I can go first. So I study, among other things, the Jewish community of Barcelona. And as appreciative as I am that their existence is acknowledged, I would like to have something that talks about the Jewish community of Barcelona that doesn't have this weird Christian savior narrative that the story Mm -hmm. of the Jewish community is really all about our now. Yes. And what a nice guy he is. Arnau is so nice. And unlike all of those other bad medievals, he is so deeply tolerant of the Jews and thinks they're just like us. Yes. So what would your movie be? Or TV series? I instead, I think it would actually be really interesting to do something about this host desecration accusation. And because I, I think, mm. as I said before, I think host desecrations are so, accusations are so fascinating and weird. Mm-hmm. And I'm all for, in general, just more depictions of like the weird, mm-hmm. the weird Middle Ages. Yeah, sure. Why not? But that gets it right. Yes, that gets it right. And a figure actually who I think would, we, there actually is a real figure who I know about and have, uh, and, and is mentioned in my book, in fact, which I am at the time of recording, hopefully about to finish. There is actually a figure who, like Arnau, is uh, kind of experiences uh, in uh, very uh, deep ways both the massacre of the Jews of Barcelona and this host desecration accusation. So it's this woman named Bonadona. They're all named Bonadona. Of course. And uh, she's married first to a man named Samuel de Piera, who is a Jewish, uh, at least part-time moneylender. And he dies either of the plague or in the subsequent massacres. In a lot of these cases, it's really unclear. We both know basically there's a lot of Jewish widows who suddenly pop up in 1348-1349. We usually Mm -hmm. don't know exactly what happened to their husbands, but it's a pretty good bet that one of those two things is how they ended up becoming widowed. So she pops up, uh, she is uh, involved for a little bit in collecting on some of the loans made by her husbands and in making a few new ones. And then in the summer of 1349, she then uh, remarries. Uh, This actually involves also she gives up formally the guardianship of her minor son. And uh, she marries this man, Astrid Vidal Viona, who you might remember from earlier, is in fact one of these three Jews who gets executed for this host desecration Ooh. accusation. Oh, was that actually was he in the in the in the um in the series? 
Once no, in, in real life. His name? Oh, okay, sorry. We don't know the names of the other two men who are executed ah, in the series. Okay. Just to say. But he's one of the three, but he's one of the three real life Jews who gets executed for the host desecration accusation. Oh, okay, I see. All right, so she's basically lived through these various, so would you do it like a procedural? I think I would maybe do a kind of like dramatic miniseries like this one that would potentially Hmm. be something looking at the Jewish community of Barcelona that would perhaps present it as being, you know, that there are times when, you know, things are going well and that there would also perhaps be these storylines which are about, you know, things that she's doing involving kind of work with her client, with, uh, you know, clients when she's working as a moneylender, that there would be things Mm -hmm. having to do with her, you know, relationship with her husbands and her children, but that we would also then have, uh, you know, say if it's four or five episodes, there would be an episode each that would get into these kind of big traumatic moments that she is uh, in some ways kind of at the center of. Oh, that would be very, I would definitely watch that 100%. Yeah. So yeah. What if, what if we had Jews that had Jews, but we actually centered the figure of a Jewish woman and not a Christian guy? It sounds crazy, but it might work. And you know what? We don't, we don't even have to have anybody get raped. We could manage it without it. I think, I think we could get through. I think we could get through it without one rape. Okay. That may be going too far. (laughs) How could we have a medieval woman not get raped? That's, it's a struggle. It is, but I bet you could do it. I, for mine, I am torn. And I had two ideas. Part of me wants a better movie for Margarita. Now, Margarita, mm. if you'll recall, is the daughter, the daughter of Grau Puj, And mm-hmm. she's the, you know, first the young girl. She's part of this sort of people, group of people who look down their noses at Bernat and Arnaud and um, then are like hell-bent on destroying them. Right. But at the when we very first meet her, she's a young woman. She's a girl, actually, maybe about 12 years old. She's super feisty. Yeah. Right? And she's she wants to be like she's like reenacting like being a soldier in the mm-hmm. Battle of Sardinia. And she's like telling the boys, we're going to sneak down to the waterfront. We're going to go look at the boats. And they're like, oh, I don't know. She's like, come on, don't be chicken. Um, and like and then that all like curdles into evil. And like, mm-hmm. what if you actually gave her something to do? Yeah. You know, what if Keep you her gave job. her something something to do and let her, you know, go be a pirate or something That'd be like great. that, right? That would be great. But the other thought I was having, and this is another one that has some of these kind of side characters that I thought would be great. The other part of me wants kind of a comedy adventure where Aladis and her merry band of whores mm. realize that they, after this, that they can pull off schemes, that they're <laughs> good at this, right? And so it's like a series where they be, they um, become a roving band of either con women or Robin Hood types oh, or maybe be a little bit of both. And then, you know, occasionally every five or six episodes, they like save the kingdom. Yeah. Right? Oh, that sounds great. And I mean, we could even work in Francesca. We don't know what happens to Francesca here. Like they just sort of leave yeah. her there. Well, maybe she's... They've gotten some money and she's bought a nice house up in Fieras and she's sort of like, you know, giving them their missions mm-hmm. and then they go off and do their thing. So we see her at the beginning and the end of every episode, sort of like Charlie's Angel, but with women. <laughs> yes. Oh, that sounds so, so good. Anyway, so those were my two ideas for things that would be interesting. And unlike this series, that second series I proposed would actually inherently pass the Bechdel test. Yes. 
Yes. This one does not. It passes oh, no. the Decker test, I think. But it I does. Watch it, but I watch this over and over again. I'm like, nope. Every conversation between women is about our now. I will say I think every conversation between men is also about our now. That's true. Really, <laughs> this whole conversation between you and I is about our now. So are we any better if we think about we it? We also have not passed the Bechdel test. <laughs> We'll have to talk about other things later. We talked about a church for a while. Yeah. With that, we can now go ahead and in the Estimatio section, rate this miniseries on a scale of one to five based on whatever subjective criteria we see fit. I am going to go with a two out of five. And what I did was I knocked off a point for every female character who gets very dramatically brutalized at some point over the course of the series. So that's Francesca, Habiba, Aliris, and Mar. Is that all? Francesca, I mean, a couple of them get brutalized multiple times. That's true. Okay. All right, so we're down to one. Yeah, so that's down to one. And then I'm going to add back in a half point for acknowledging Jews exist. Yay! And I'm going to add back in a half point for the fact that there are really great visuals of Barcelona. If you just like, I mean, so the acting is excellent, but also, I mean, the plot is mm, rough. But like, if you watch this with like the sound off and just kind of like looked up every now and then, the visuals mm-hmm. are fantastic. Yes. Okay, I'm going to be a little, just a hair more generous than that. I agree with your assessment of the problems, the many problems that we have discussed. Overall, for all my complaining, the real problems are in the source material. Yes. Right? And not necessarily in, I mean, and once again, disclaimer, I only got halfway through the book. But for what I can tell, the series tracks the book very, very faithfully. Based on my decades old, my decade old memories of the book. Exactly. And it's a, it is a honking huge book. It is a doorstop of a novel, by the way. The actors do a really good job with mm-hmm. the material that they have. The production and the visuals, we've already said a couple times, is spectacular. It's entertaining. Yeah. Um, I think if, that is, if you're, you know, if you're not a historian and we skip over the bits where women are frequently brutalized as a catalyst to the plot rather than caring about them, the, the storyline itself is entertaining. It takes a lot and it takes you through, uh, there's enough good history in here with the bad stuff to maybe intrigue someone to want to learn more. And especially I'm grateful for this because most cinematic depictions that we have of the Middle Ages that are available to people in the United States tend to focus on England. And this is one that does not. It doesn't Mm -hmm. focus on England. It doesn't focus on France. It doesn't focus on the Borgias. Right. And so I, the most regrettable cliches comes with the film's treatment of women, Jews, and Muslims. But again, I think it's a choice of bad source material. Mm-hmm. And if we are thinking as, you know, instructors of young, well, not super young, but undergraduates and people who we potentially want to see medieval theme media drawing in, I think that this series could do a good job. Mm-hmm. We would have to undo a lot of the damage. So I'm giving it a 2.5 out of 5. That is fair. And I will say the, uh, I'm, I'm going to leave my score as is, but the other thing I will say in its favor is the fact that another thing that I find frustrating in addition to the heavy overemphasis on England and France in most uh, medieval set media 
is also the fact that most media tends to really focus primarily on royalty and nobility. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that this is a, an extensive treatment that mostly centers uh, the experiences of people who are not of uh, of the royalty or nobility, especially you know, especially absolutely. if you don't count our now's weird ennobling. Yes, yes, <laughs> um, absolutely. And this is, I think that it, that very thing that makes it problematic for us is a thing that could make this movie appealing. That presentism could, in terms of social class, is a thing that could make this movie, this mm-hmm. series rather, appealing to a uh, sort of a modern audience. Um, there's some nice, you know, there's some wish fulfillment in there that, yes. you know, it's going to be very typical of the genre there. So as much as it feeds into the stereotypes by doing that, that helps it sort of provide its uh, function in what the what the people are thinking of doing with it. Yeah. And even that there's there's a medieval economy. I like that. There there's is. an economy. They usually there forget is. there's they... an economy. <laughs> That's true. There are there are stacks of gold coins everywhere, but yeah. no economy. Right. None. So mm-hmm. yeah, something something to be said for it, certainly, even though it also has its flaws. Yes. Summary, so are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? Almost none. Okay. Way, way back a long time ago, I used to have more of an internet presence, but that has fallen away uh, as I've become a decrepit in my old age. <laughs> so, or middle age anyway, you could find me on my university's website at California State University, Long Beach. And uh, if you're interested in history of medieval Iberia or medieval gender, you could even come study with me and meet me in person. But I think that is about it as far as my public presence on the internet. And I also highly recommend that people check out Marie's book, The Measure of Woman, Law and Female Identity and the Crown of Aragon, which I cite constantly. Aw, thank you. And hopefully in the not too distant future, you'll get the version of this talk with footnotes um, because <laughs> the, the book I'm working on is specifically about this famine year 1333-34 in the city of Barcelona. And it does a lot of this kind of tracking of a year in the life of medieval Barcelona and this this kind of deep dive into what the city was all about at this point. Yeah, so very much looking forward to that. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate interview Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah If Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I would love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Marie, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It has been a blast. It has been a delight to have you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Goodbye.